This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. Can I just tell you, I love, love, love this double issue. I mean, we love the magazine every week, but I have to say so many great deep dives into stories and so many things you're going to be, you're going to read it and you're going to walk away or you're going to listen to it. And you're going to walk away and like, I didn't know that. We have some clear highlights from the issue in this week's show. Also next week's show, we're going to have even more, but some of the stories that really jump out to me, uh, the Barclays story is so compelling. Yeah, absolutely. And we also have some highlights from our daily show because we caught up, we talked a little bit about the elections, uh, women in the upcoming elections, how the pipeline is definitely building. So we'll talk about that. Also, apparently recession. Don't worry about it. It's all good here in the United States. What happened three months ago? Don't worry. That's according to our economics editor, as well as the CEO of Visa. Plus, we've got a conversation with the CEO of Tiffany after the news this week that luxury brand LVMH has entered talks to buy the jewelry maker. Apparently, they upped their bid. And so now the two companies are talking. Talk about fortuitous because The year ahead luxury, this is an event that we do at Bloomberg every year. They had already scheduled for the CEO of Tiffany to come in, and he was gracious enough to stick around and really answer a bunch of questions. Much more of that ahead. But we begin with our top stories. A busy week in D.C. with impeachment hearings, trade talks hitting a series of road bumps. Let's break it down with Ryan Teague Beckwith in D.C. So, Ryan, Help us understand everything that happened there in the nation's capital. This was a long week, and... (laughs) Uh, The Sondland testimony on Wednesday established pretty definitively that there was at least one quid pro quo um, holding out the White House meeting in exchange for investigations into the Bidens. Um, Sondland testified that he was not definitively sure that there was a second quid pro quo on the aid, but that establishes a sort of pattern. And as uh, the questioners, uh, the Democratic questioners sort of made clear, a White House visit is an official act, which would be the statutory term for something that could be considered a a thing of value in a a bribery case. So they could have an article of impeachment itself just on holding out the promise of a White House visit in exchange for a personal favor of investigating the Bidens. All right, Ryan, as you said, a very long week. So we had the impeachment hearings going on. We also had trade talks again. And I feel like I've said this so much over the last few years in terms of U.S.-China trade negotiations, two steps forward, one step back. Where are we? I mean, it's it exists in a nebulous zone right now. Uh, Trump has been using Twitter to argue that Democrats should be somehow advancing uh, a, a trade deal that he hasn't sent to them. Um, I actually think that the impeachment means that both uh, on the domestic side, that both Trump and Democrats will want to do it. For Democrats, it's a way of saying, look, we're not just out to get Trump. Mm. Um, we'll work with him on something we can agree on. And this is one of the few things that they both agree on and have made some progress on. Like, they, they agree on infrastructure, but they've made no progress on that. All right, Ryan Teague Beckwith, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for wrapping up a very busy week in Washington. Well, from D.C. to London, a story in the magazine on how Brexit's chaos, it's opening cracks in the U.K.'s 300-year-plus Union. Yeah, this is also going on. This week, a televised debate and election campaigns also picking up momentum. Let's head to London, check in with Tim Ross. So much going on. Busy here in the States, busy over in the UK. Let's talk about the uh, election uh, trail uh, and news from there. There was a lot of momentum, Tim. What's the momentum that we need to know about as investors? 
Well, at the moment, the Conservative Party is still ahead comfortably in the opinion polls of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. But in the first of the televised debates between Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister and Tory leader, and Jeremy Corbyn, who is challenging him from a really quite a hard left wing socialist angle, they ended in a bit of a draw. It was a kind of stalemate. Everyone was really expecting Johnson, or most people were expecting Johnson to do well. He's a famous campaigner. He won the Brexit campaign for those pro-Leave voters in 2016. He's won two terms as London mayor. And he was picked really by the Tories as someone who could defeat Corbyn. But in that first debate on Tuesday night, it was declared a draw, really, in the first opinion poll that was taken afterwards. That hasn't really moved the dial in terms of where the parties stand. But Corbyn isn't doing terribly. And Johnson isn't doing brilliantly at the moment. And so as we look ahead, it feels like we're working under the assumption Mm -hmm. there's going to be some sort of Brexit. And as we think about the implications of that, there are real implications if you look especially north of where you are to Scotland. And that figures into a much larger and maybe in some ways more limited future for the United Kingdom. Tell us what you've learned. Well, as in the magazine this week, we have a a story in there about the future of the UK potentially being at stake in this election. If, for example, uh, the Conservative Party doesn't get that majority, and if the Labour Party managed to squeeze into power with the support of potentially the Scottish nationalists who are saying they they would help get Jeremy Corbyn into 10 Downing Street, that would give the pro-independence campaigners in Scotland a really big boost, the kind of boost they haven't really had since Scotland voted in its own referendum in 2014 uh, on the question of whether to break away from the UK. Nicola Sturgeon is this sort of tough, firebrand leader of the Scottish National Party, and she is very sure that Brexit means Scotland must now get a vote on its own future and whether to break away from the rest of the UK. And if she helps Jeremy Corbyn get into power, he might just give her that vote. That's Tim Ross. And like we kidded with Ryan Teague Beckwith about how busy it was over in Washington and just the U.S. at large. But it was really very busy over in the U.K. as well. Well, and the next couple of weeks are really going to determine the fate of the United Kingdom in many ways. And if you look out two years, certainly 10 years, it could be a radically different kingdom, as it were, than we saw. This has been effectively in place for 300 years. Right. A reminder, it's not just about Brexit, but it's about really the fate of the UK going forward. So we talk often about the importance of building pipelines as a necessary way to create more diversity, more women in both the public and private sectors. Here with what we've learned since the 2018 midterms and how she's working to get more women in the pipeline, Erin Luce Cutraro, she's back with us, founder and CEO of She Should Run. And she's, of course, typically based in Washington, D.C. She's back here in the Bloomberg headquarters, specifically in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So nice to have you back. Thank you, Carol. Um, Tell us about where we are when it comes to the prospect of more women making their way into uh, elected office. Sure. So, uh, you know, I'll start by saying that a lot of folks are particularly interested in was was 2018 a, a moment in time? Was it a surge that would pass? And what we're seeing in the numbers so far is we're sustaining the momentum, continuing to grow the pipeline. Um, and I think there's some really interesting stories to tell that look quite different than 2018 even. And so, Aaron, as you look across the success stories, what what do you take away that that might be a through line? I, obviously, every race is a little bit different, but where have you seen things where you said, okay, we should do that again? 
You know, I, th- I think what's most interesting is that a lot of the research around women running um, points to the need to recruit women, to encourage women to run for office. This is all still true. It's a uh, mostly a man's game with his, you know, record or majority men in office. It's not surprising to see men are more likely to be recruited. But what we're seeing that's different is that women are now increasingly saying, OK, I'm going to run. I'm going to run just like I am. And, um, Mm. and the voters are hungry, I think, um, for that variety. And, and while we're not there yet, I wouldn't say we're totally normalized in seeing women in positions of political power. Mm -hmm. It's becoming more and more normal to see women, to tell their stories. And I think as we continue to see that, we will continue to see more women step forward. Because you said earlier, different stories to tell than 2018. Is that what's different? Yeah. You know, what's, what, two things that I want to point out. One is, um, you know, we, we, we absolutely see a, a record number of women on the ballot already. Um, what's super interesting to me is it's a Republican story. So um, last year at this time, uh, there was a, a story of a record number of women on the ballot, but it was primarily Democratic women. Right. This year, we actually have registered to run um, for federal office double the number of Republican female candidates than we did last year at the same time. Wow. So, you know, th- we saw this in the in the outcome of the election in 2018. There was little to no gain. In some places, Republican women actually went backwards in their percentage of um, of political power, and so what that changed? absolutely needed to change. What changed? You know, look, I think there's there's a really high number of incumbent Republican men who have announced they're not running for right. re-election, okay. which opens up, I mean, tremendous opportunity. It's really difficult to beat an incumbent. On the Democratic side, what we're seeing is a record number of um, challengers to incumbents. Um, which some yeah. could point to examples like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez mm-hmm. and say, mm-hmm. not surprising. Yeah. Right. Well, because that was one where it seemed like the longest of long shots and then it happened. That's I mean, right. this was one of the most senior members of the House, uh, Joe Crowley, that she, of course, defeated. How does it being a presidential year change things? Obviously, you get bigger voter turnout, typically. Uh, Does that change your calculus at all, who you go after, who you recruit? Yeah, I mean, it it does in that, I mean, look, women since I think 64 have been the majority of voters Mm -hmm. in elections, and that will, I'm sure, remain true this uh, in, in the 2020 elections. Do women tend to vote for other women? Do uh, we have any research on that yet? No, I don't. You know, I, yeah, I can't point to it. Because we talk about in the business community, even like female venture capitalists don't always, aren't very supportive of other women entrepreneurs. So I just wondered if there's anything no, and, that and, plays out politically. Absolutely. And I, I'd love to say that, you know, I'm not privy to research that you look at and say, yeah. ooh, God, women are really tough on other women. Yeah. You right. know, I mean, there's this issue that we face around women running. Probably number one issue is around likability. Women have to be likable. Men don't have to be likable. So what does that mean for women who, are running um, women hold them to that high of a standard too around likability and qualifications so right. we have a long way to go there well and I do wonder about likability what does it mean for a woman because I think um, I'm going to say I think it's more complicated because I think some people like women who are very successful and driven and, and career driven and strong and some want them to be like the person you know your next door neighbor who's watching kids all of it valuable. I'm yeah. not making any judgment call, but I do wonder what's likable yeah. in an environment like today. Or does it come down to policies and what they stand for? It really does feel like something you can't win. You know, if you yeah. if you're if you're too assertive, then that's that's no good. If you're you know too soft, um, that's no good. Mm-hmm. And I think 
until we get to a place where we have critical mass of women serving in elected office and those examples to point to, we're going to continue to struggle with this. So you mentioned uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who obviously has become arguably one of the most prominent politicians Mm -hmm. in America. There is this whole notion, we've talked about it a lot on this show, the whole notion of, you know, if you can see it, you can be it, that that idea. Nancy Pelosi sort of coming back Mm -hmm. to being one of the most senior politicians in the U.S. Has that changed the calculus at all? And this crop of new women legislators what is the ultimate impact there? Yeah, look, it's the it's the most diverse Congress that we've ever seen. And it absolutely changes who who's thinking about running, who's who looks forward and says, um, you know, maybe, maybe I can see myself in that role. We at She Should Run focus primarily on women who are running at the local level. Mm-hmm. And that's where we see a huge effect, because, you know, when you when you sort of only see one type of person serving in elected office, you look at that and you say, no way, that's not me no chance. I'm not qualified. You go through all of the issues. But as we continue to diversify that that representation, I think, you know, it's anybody it's anybody's game then. Well, and I do wonder about, you know, you put, there was a stat in some of the research that you sent over that uh, the World Economic Forum recently projected that we are a staggering at 208 years away from gender equality in the U.S. Um, that just hurts me so, so much. Um, in terms of what you're seeing politically, do you feel like, though, and the momentum, as you said, feels like it's really, really strong. Um, could we see parity a lot closer in terms of Congress? Yes. My and- hope is that there's a snowball effect here. Yeah. Absolutely. If we continue at the rate that we're at, it's going to take a really long time. This will not happen in our lifetime. But, you know, that we, we actually just launched a program called Roll Call that gets mm-hmm. right at this, which is um, what we saw of individuals coming to us is, you know, across the board, people who are catalysts within their business, within, um, you know, within their uh, education setting, within their communities that said, we want to do something to be helpful, but, um, but, but I'm not the candidate. So right. what can I do? Right. And so what we have done is build the platform to say, look, we're, if we want to solve this in less than, you know, what the World Economic Forum is telling us, then we all have to step up and do something. And those little somethings will add up to something really big. That's Erin Lose Catraro. She's the CEO of She Should Run. And, you know, the work that they've been doing, it's all about getting more women to step up to the plate to consider running for office. And that's what it is, building the pipeline. And we saw it pay off in the midterms. We see it. Uh, playing out, and they're working harder than ever for the upcoming 2020 election. Cureleaf Holdings beating revenue estimates, reporting its second consecutive quarter profitability. It's indicating that the large U.S. pot companies, man, they are outperforming their Canadian counterparts. Let's talk about the business, the quarter, the outlook. Boris Jordan is with us. He is um, executive chairman at Cureleaf. They're based in Wakefield, Massachusetts. Nice to have you here with us. Good to be here. Good quarter. Yeah, it worked out for us. <laughs> Can it continue? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, we're seeing uh, substantial growth in the U.S. Most of the companies are growing at around 25 to 35% quarter on quarter. Uh, I don't see that abating anytime soon, to be honest, because we're still very early days. Right. And more importantly, I think you're starting to see inflection points in a lot of the big companies, at least at Cureleaf. We saw it in the last quarter. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to see increases in profitability quarter on quarter. What's it, what's what's making that possible, that inflection You know, it's point? just the, uh, it, it's really about scale, size, and investment. So, you know, we spent the last five years investing. Building it Heavily out. building it all out, taking a lot of losses on those investments, obviously, in the early days. Uh, but now that those investments are at scale, we're starting to see the benefits of that investment period and it 
every quarter more and more goes to the bottom line. Uh, there's a lot of deal making, it feels like, uh, going on at your shop and, and elsewhere. Where are we in that process of acquisitions, expansion, et cetera? I think you're going to see a slowdown in, in major transactions because I think there's an issue with capital right now. As you know, the sector has been down and beaten up yeah. pretty hard over the last six months, uh, largely due to Canadian performance and due to the fact that the Canadian market historically has been the bellwether market for for cannabis stocks. We've sort of followed suit with them, even though our companies here have been performing much better. We hope that that trend will break and the U.S. companies will start to outperform. But for the time being, we've been basically tied at the hip with the Canadian companies. It was interesting. It was a reminder to all of us at the year ahead. Joe Lasardi sat down with me over at Cure Leaf, of course, and talked to us a bit. And he reminded us that in every state, because of the way the law is right now, you've got to set up your integration from A to Z, right? You can't right. kind of do it across states because it's illegal uh, to do that. And I do wonder that if we can figure out some kind of federal legislation, what would that do to the growth of your business? Well, I think, first of all, we actually got a ruling from the Judiciary Committee in Congress, first time Congress has ever ruled on legalization mm. of cannabis. So we have had a vote Something's on the Something's in the air, the Senate was able to get something. Yeah, so, so there's definitely something going on. I think that if that can take their mind off uh, impeachment for five minutes, yeah. maybe we'd actually get some legislation in the country. But I, listen, I think that the market would, the industry would change for sure. So I think growth w- would go exponential. But I think that what does you that would, mean? Does that mean because you said about twenty twenty? Well, because today now? it's only thirty three. Don't forget, it's only thirty three states in the country that are right. are are either medical or recreational. There's only eight that are recreational, and so that would mean the whole country would be free to be able to trade, buy, sell cannabis. So obviously that would be tremendous growth to the sector. But because everybody's siloed at the moment, um, I think that it would depend on how the legislation comes through, whether the states continue to hold power over licensing or whether that would go federal. And I think that that, that's the big unknown, and which is why I think if you ask anyone in the sector, they would prefer slow uh, legalization. So in other words, not in one day, mm. but over a period of time so that the industry could adjust to what the new rules are. I mean, a perfect example is what happened with hemp, right? Congress came out, legalized mm-hmm. uh, hemp, and now you have a total catastrophe in the market. You've right. got hemp uh, rotting in fields in Kentucky because there's no rules for CBD. I mean, hemp in and of itself isn't a particularly interesting product unless you can use uh, derived CBD from it, but they right. don't have any regulations on CBD. So it's all the CBD sales are down and you've got hemp rotting because if FDA hasn't come out with rules and the FDA is giving an indication it could take two years to come out with rules. So that's what we're they hoping like. doesn't happen in cannabis. You know, you worked on Wall Street back in the day where you worked in emerging markets, you worked for Kidder, you worked for Credit Suisse. It feels like we've been in this couple of years with investors trying to figure this market out. Do they get it at this point and how or if they don't, what's it going to take for people to fully understand the opportunity and maybe some of the complexity? So the difference, I I like to use the example of emerging markets, and and I was a very early investor in a lot of the emerging markets. And the difference between emerging markets and this cannabis market is that there you basically knew that as the country progressed, as the country wrote more legislation, as the regulators became more sophisticated, the next wave of capital would come. The issue here is is that the industry is actually quite sophisticated. The regulators are there, but it's federally legal. So a lot of money can't invest. And that's why you're seeing us tied to the Canadian stocks, because there's a lot more eyes on Canada, even though the industry's damaged and it's a lot smaller than the U.S. companies. But 
everyone can invest in Canadian stocks, whereas not everyone can buy the U.S. stocks. So what's the reality in terms of a timetable that we do get a federal regulation, you know, on cannabis? We are pretty comfortable that the votes are everywhere for SAFE Act, which is the Banking Act. So if that happens, that'll be the first step. The second step will be States Act. And if we get States Act, then the next step after that will be full legalization. Uh, And I think that we have a chance of getting SAFE Act December, January. Hmm. Really? Yeah. We have the votes. It's a question, do they have time with impeachment to actually focus on legislation? And that's Boris Jordan. He is the executive chairman of Curaleaf. Talking with him, obviously, about the numbers. They reported Mm -hmm. earnings this week. But the broader opportunity in cannabis, U.S. versus Canada, even getting in a little bit to the vaping controversy that has really consumed the public health debate of late. Right. And his expectations in terms of the regulatory environment, which could really open up the industry. The U.K. Supreme Court will hold a hearing next week involving Barclays Bank and the issue of responsibility involving a group of Barclays employees. It's a very specific case, a disturbing one, and it's a case with an outcome that could have implications for the gig economy. Jason, it also raises questions, too, about Wall Street responsibility and getting away with something once again. Max Abelson is here with us in New York. This is a story he's been working on for some time. Max, great to see you. Thanks for having me. All right. So tell us how this story came about. Uh, I mean, honestly... It was a long time ago. A couple of months have gone by since I was sitting in my Bloomberg terminal and I saw a story by Kay Wiggins, who's a was a great legal correspondent here. Uh, she's since left Bloomberg News. Um, she writes in, in England about the law and she wrote maybe a four paragraph story that said that a group of claimants, which are what plaintiffs in England are called, um, said that when they were teenagers and they were applying for jobs mm-hmm. uh, at Barclays, sort of low-level uh, branch jobs in Newcastle, which is a northeast city in, uh, in England, in, in that area. They said that Barclays said, uh, okay, you have the job, but you have to go see a doctor. And you have to go see this doctor. His name is Gordon Bates, and you have to go to his house. And these people said that Dr. Bates um, sexually assaulted them, um, about 120 of them. And they wanted to hold Barclays responsible because Barclays had sent them to him. And they won. And then Barclays appealed. Mm -hmm. And they won again. And Barclays appealed again to the Supreme Court. And this news item said, the Supreme Court is going to be hearing this really interesting case. So I called Kay up and I asked her, do you think that this might make for an interesting feature story? And she said, "I I think it would. And we started working on it. And one of the first things we did is we got in touch with the court system in England and asked them for court documents because... It's such a fascinating story, but it hasn't gotten a lot of coverage. No, it as, hasn't. As, as sometimes court cases don't in England, um, where the coverage of sort of uh, current legal questions are often quieter than, than in America. We got permission from, from the court, and in fact, we got through the court really, really fascinating documents that shined a light on how this happened. Fascinating and disturbing. Fascinating and disturbing. I mean, this was an, this was an upsetting story to, to work on. There's, there's no doubt about it. And I'm, I'm sure it's an upsetting story to, uh, to read. And, and it might even be upsetting for viewers and listeners to, to watch now and, and listen now. But um, what was really special is that we got um, a couple of people who had worked for Barclays and were sent to Dr. Bates to talk to us and to share their stories. And what the story is about you know, on the one hand, it's about these visits debates and what ended up happening to these our two main characters, who we call uh, James and Anne. Not are, their real names, right? Aren't their real names? The yeah. the, the court uh, ordered us not to use their real names. Um, it's partially about that, which is upsetting. 
but it's also um i think a a, a complicated and rich story about um this really fascinating question of when a company has a responsibility mm-hmm. to their workers and in this case barclays says dr bates wasn't our employee he was just a you know essentially a contractor so we're sorry if anything bad happened but but not, he, our, not our fault. But they sent, Barclays sent possible employees to him, or once they were employees, to him for many, many years. Like, this went on for a long time. Carol went on for a long time. So it started in the late 60s, and right. it ended in the mid-80s. And a few years later, Barclays says they stopped sending people to the doctor. You know, why they would send them to the doctor in the first place is a question you might have. They say it was uh, uh, make sure they were fit to work uh, and um, have fit for, you know, uh, insurance. Um, You know, Barclays um, says that, um, you know, we only found out about this in around 2013 when people started complaining. Right. Um, But without giving away too much, because I hope folks read the story, we have a court document that includes allegations um, that, you know, half a dozen, more than a half a dozen people and their parents called Barclays, um, called managers, called human relations people to say something really bad happened here. Right. And it happened start as early as the late 70s and into the 80s. But Barclays kept using Bates. And Bates has since passed away. You spoke with mm-hmm. his family for this story. You reached out to his family. They ultimately didn't comment. Gordon correct? Bates is dead. Uh, he died in 2009. His son is Nigel Bates, who worked for Barclays for 32 years, according to something I just found in court documents, actually. Hmm. Um, you know, I uh, I emailed with him uh, a bunch. I, I, you know, when you're telling a story like this, you know, I, of course, Deeply interested in the accounts of the people who saw Bates, but you know, I have to say, I'm just as interested in the perspective of Barclays, um, who, did, who, who, who didn't comment. Essentially, they said that they wouldn't answer questions while the case was ongoing. Right. But I also would have loved to speak to the family. I mean, if Gordon Bates were alive, I certainly would have wanted to speak with him. Well, and I do. Let's get into like this whole idea of you know whether or not the firm takes responsibility for folks who were their employees, meaning the people who worked for them, right? And what happened to them by either by someone who was not technically a Barclays employee. And it gets to the heart of responsibility. That's absolutely right. I mean, in a way, you know, what we do here by chronicling capitalism is we follow the ways things change and the ways the relationship between companies and their customers, but also companies and their employees changes. Right. And, you know, when Bates was alive, he would not have recognized um, this whole new kind of economy. You know, the, you have Uber, um, you have Deliveroo in England. Um, it's, this, it's this gig economy where these giants, these multi-billion dollar companies have saved a lot of money. They've saved both the cost of having to pay people on the one hand, and they, and they saved legal liability on the other by saying, these people are not our employees. They're freelancers. We're a platform for freelancers. We're not, we're not employers. And in this case, um, it, the fight is similar. The fight is to hold Barclays responsible, or the legal word here is vicariously liable. Hmm. And vicariously, vi- vicarious liability is sort of a boring sounding phrase, but it's so interesting. Yeah. Because it's a way of saying that you are vicariously liable for something he did. You know, Barclays, in a way, is, is 
in some sense, an innocent party here, as, as a judge might describe them, because Barclays as an institution wasn't in that room. But the question is, are they responsible for what happened in that house in Newcastle? And what precedent might that set right. for the economy that we now live in? So as I read this, and Carol and I have talked a lot about this story, because yeah. I think we both were just knocked over by it. It's a powerful piece of journalism, to say the least. And and the fact that you, Max, worked on it really called to mind, I think, for me, and I think for Carol as well, sort of the whole body of your work, which in part is about Wall Street's culpability mm -hmm. across so many things. You know, here we are 11 years on from the onset of the financial crisis and at a time when politicians, candidates for high office are talking about these issues of, well, hold on a second, who's ultimately responsible? And I think it's fair to say there's a pattern of behavior across Wall Street and financial firms where they kind of get off on a technicality. And as I read this, I saw a through line through a lot of things that, yeah. that you've written about this. And I wonder how you feel about that. Because people were hurt here. People were hurt. And so where do they get their justice? Well, you know, that's just about one of the most interesting questions about my work that I've ever been asked. I find it very moving that you connect this to other stories that I've worked on. And, you know, it's something that I have to, as, as a reporter, um, working with my editors like Robert Friedman um, and with my colleagues like Katya Porzakansky, uh, she and I wrote the story about Cantor Fitzgerald right. Right. Exactly. and the woman who had a Bernie Sanders mug um, in an office in New Jersey and she opened up the cupboard one day and she found feces in it, she says. In that case, Cantor Fitzgerald, um, when sued by this woman, basically said, you can't sue us. You signed an arbitration agreement. Right. And in that case, the question of um, the arbitration system, the question of vicarious liability kind of merge in my mind in exactly the way you're talking about. You know, how if, – if one question readers and viewers and listeners might have is, you know, how and why have these powerful institutions gotten away with whatever bad behavior has happened – Certainly one answer that, um, you know, it's the kind of thing we talk about in the newsroom is it, it's almost as if each story or each lawsuit um, or each interview shines sort of a new beam of light on, you know, something that sometimes we, we've begun to talk about as like this, like this machine, mm. you know, like a machine of mm -hmm. silence um, that keeps things quiet. And, you know, we have to be fair to these companies because, of course, you know, in the Cantor Fitzgerald case, they just simply deny it. They say it's not so much a matter of a machine of silence. They would say it's just that nothing bad happened. And a, and a lot of powerful people on Wall Street feel that way. That's Max Abelson. And this story, man, it's a disturbing one. It's a case with an outcome that could have implications for the gig economy. But, you know, Jason, you and I got into it with Max. It really digs into also Wall Street accountability. I have to say this story and that conversation with Max has mm -hmm. really stuck with me since we sat down with him in the studio. I know Max pretty well. I've worked with him on stories and his journalism, I feel like, is some of the most important and powerful that we do at Bloomberg. It goes to the core of who our audience is right. in many ways and goes to the core of the story of Wall Street over the past two decades. And constantly uncovering difficult situations, particularly within the financial community, and really getting out there some things that people don't want to address, but he's really uncovering a lot of important information. 
some big news this week. In fact, we've been following this deal or potential deal uh, for the last few weeks. LVMH and Tiffany, they officially have entered talks after the French luxury brand upped its offer for the U.S. jeweler. And you, Carol Masser, caught up with the CEO of Tiffany. That is Alessandro Boliolo here at the Year Ahead Luxury Conference at Bloomberg headquarters. All right, so let's do the elephant in the living room. So... Everybody's been reporting about LVMH. It sounds like you guys are finally officially talking. Is that fair? We have six key strategic priorities. And the first one is to amplify our brand message. Now, by amplifying our brand message, I was not meaning to talk about M&A in a conference. So maybe I can expand on other points if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I will. And, I, and I'm not going to push too much because I know there's a lot of stuff going on. But I do wonder about when we look at the luxury space, is there something to be had by being part of a bigger conglomerate like LVMH? And I, I'm curious, you've been at the company now for two years, right? Yes. And you've been rebooting stories, reworking a strategy, introducing lots of lines. Is M&A, is a deal kind of part of the plan? Well, I have to say that there are many luxury brands, but when you took, you take really top luxury brands, the, the big, let me say, mega brands, we talk about a handful of brands. And uh, among those, you have uh, actually some of them extremely successful that right. are part of big groups. Consider Vuitton, consider Cartier. But you have uh, other brands that are super brands, super powerful, that are not part of, uh, of big groups, consider Chanel, consider Hermes. So honestly, I, uh, I mean, seriously, I don't think that for uh, this kind of uh, level of brands, there is uh, a magic formula. It could be, it's proven, can be one way, can be the other. What is crucial is that when you lead a brand like ours that has 182 years of history, yeah. you at the end of the day, you have to concentrate on uh, the legacy that you receive and uh, the beautiful product and promises that you made to your customers. This is really the key of success. Then the financial arrangements, as I said, I mean, can be successful one or the other. What is important, customers, they don't care about your shareholders. Right. Customers care about your products, about your brand, about... Uh, sustainability about the beauty of your uh, products. This is what really makes success. You know, it's interesting that you say that too, Alessandro. I think we're in a year where we are so much debating public-private markets, right? And I think companies are evaluating the benefits and pro or the pros and cons of staying private versus not. And I do wonder, can I just indulge me for a second? <laughs> Please. <laughs> a Bloomberg opinion piece today, and it said... Um, one of our writers said, a deal would benefit both sides. For the owner of Louis Vuitton, it would mean dominating the jewelry market. I mean, it would automatically give them a huge presence. While Tiffany could avoid the tricky task of executing a turnaround in a U.S. recession on its own. So I do wonder about being able to step away. We're part of the problem. We focus quarter to quarter to quarter. So when you're doing renovations on stores, when you're thinking about the future, you know, you get a report card every three months. And I think sometimes it makes it difficult for a publicly held company. Would there be some benefits from stepping away from that public spotlight? Well, for sure, for any public company to be Not reporting, <laughs> to be reporting every quarter, there is, uh, of course, it's uh, it's a check that you have to go through every quarter. <clears throat> and uh, 
we take it very, very seriously because yeah. it's our shareholders and it's our obligation to not only report but also deliver results to the benefit of our shareholders. Having said so, I think as uh, a leader of uh, a brand mm -hmm. with uh, such an history which means value, to maximize that value, I have uh, and my team, we have to look at the quarter but we have to look even more at the next three years, at the next five years. So this is, uh, if you want, the real challenge in managing a brand uh, with uh, a legacy like, uh, like Tiffany. Right. Because uh, you have, uh, of course, uh, to maximize the profit for your shareholders, but this doesn't mean that it is uh, just the sum of uh, 10 good quarters. You have to think about uh, the next 10 years. All right, two more questions that I'm going to move off, off of what every, was on everybody's mind. Are you open to a deal? <laughs> <laughs> we could have a deal if uh, all the advent calendars went, didn't already sell. They are all sold out. Otherwise, I would uh, Wait, are really you talking about the advent calendar or are you talking about a you, deal? I would offer you as a deal a, a beautiful advent calendar to avoid this question. Unfortunately, they are also that. <laughs> but if I open December 24th, would it say a deal? <laughs> you know, they didn't share with me what there is in December 24th, but I will tell you on December 25th. That's Alessandro Boliolo, the CEO of Tiffany & Company, and he was a good sport to talk about uh, the potential for a deal. But we really dug deeper, too, into what's going on with the luxury space. They're making changes at their stores, not just in the U.S., their flagship in New York, but also around the globe. Uh, they've been hit by some of the tensions because of uh, the U.S.-China trade war. So a lot to talk about. Well, and I feel like in a week where we got so many earnings mm -hmm. from retailers and conflicting reports, Really an interesting deep dive into the world of luxury. So I'm stealing the words of our economics editor, Peter Coy, because he reminds us and writes this week about three months ago, the U.S. economic outlook, well, it didn't look so good. Today, definitely a different feel and investors definitely reacting accordingly. They've sent U.S. Uh, equity averages to record highs. Yeah, so what do we make of all this? Peter mm. Coy is with us himself here in our New York City studio. As you looked at this, you saw a very different picture. We all did yeah. in August. It's really amazing. What the heck happened? <laughs> you know, the equity markets, I think, tend to overshoot very often. So both on the downside and the upside. So it could be that things were not as bad as we thought in August. And it could be they're not as good as we think now. So you have to take, take stocks with a grain of salt. That said, there are some changes since August. You know, I picked out one day in August when the the, the Dow Jones Industrials and the S&P 500 both fell like 3% in one session. And the 30-year Treasury bond hit a record low. It was like recession talk was in the air mm -hmm. uh, on our TV, mm -hmm. you know, everywhere. Uh, so what's happened since then? Well, one thing is that the Fed had already changed its stance. At, even... At that time in August, they had, they'd already put through one rate cut. They've done two since then. And that's huge. The most powerful central bank in the world, the European Central Bank, resumed buying securities to drive down the long end of their yield curve. We see the Bank of Japan maybe not as aggressive, but, you know, keeping their policy rate in negative territory. So I would say 
monetary policy is the single biggest change since then. And then you can fill in a lot of things around that. But if it hadn't been for that, we'd probably still be in a world of hurt. Well, I think that's really key, right? Go back almost a year, last December, right? We were yes. talking about the Fed raising exactly. rates several times. The, the, that and was they the plan. Did raise rates. The, the, the December was the last increase, yeah. but but Powell was still talking about how yeah we have more right. in more, more to, to come, come. more right. to come in 2019. And December 24th, Christmas Eve, was a massacre in the yeah. stock market. It was yep. really bad. You, if you go back and look at the history of the stock market, then it's like a deep V. And then uh, everybody took off for Christmas. And they came <laughs> back with bright smiles in their faces. And the day after, <laughs> stocks shot up because the, I think something happened around then where the, the Fed kind of changed its mind a little right. bit. And, and that got – that was the beginning of the rally we're in now. But we do, we have, you know, you talk about re- recession. We we focused a lot on that two-year and 10-year spread right. in the treasury market where we did see an inversion right. of the yield curve. And we've seen that in the past. Right. So in- the, 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 the inversion, of course, means right. that the 10-year yield falls below the two-year Correct. yield, which historically is an indicator recession right. is coming because, you know, usually long-term rates are Right, you're are paying higher. more, yeah. So um, – it didn't last very long, though. It was gone within two weeks, and we had a re-steepening of the yield curve, which is a positive sign uh, in ordinary circumstances for the economy. Um, it means that conditions are normal, basically. And tell us about how geopolitics plays into this, because it's something we obviously all watch very closely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a super optimistic world, right. to your earlier point, yeah. and yet, on a relative basis— the world feels a little bit better or better enough. Yeah, better that- enough. Better enough. That's high praise, right? <laughs> yeah. Better enough. The, the, uh, the trade war has not devolved into as bad as it could have been. Trump's pulled back or delayed on some of the tariffs on China. And uh, we still don't know how that's going to turn out as we sit here. But it just is, again, it's not as bad as it could have been. Meanwhile, Brexit um, – I'm not saying Brexit is a major influence on the world stock markets, mm-hmm. but it's one of those things sure. that mm-hmm. you worry about. And uh, it appears as though they're pulling back from the brink. It's less likely to be a hard, uh, messy, uncontrolled Brexit. Well, one of the things you point out, which I think is really important, we talk about all the time on our daily show, of which you're a frequent guest, is this notion of business spending. Yeah. And and that is something yeah. that has been tailing off for the yeah. last year, yeah. 18 months. Right. And you quote somebody in your story essentially saying that may be the big question. And the answer to that question may determine whether we are able to sort of continue on this ride for longer. Right. That's, that's the fly in the ointment. The consumer is really strong in the U.S. U.S. consumer, we had to pick one force in the entire global economy. It's the U.S. consumer out there still spending and, but support in a, in a sustainable way because mm-hmm. real wages, that is adjusted for inflation, have been rising and unemployment is super low. So people have spending power. They're not carrying a lot of debt. The question is, can this keep going for a long time if businesses are cutting back? Because businesses cut back on spending. Maybe they're going to cut back on hiring. Maybe some of the the income of the consumer will eventually trail off. Now, uh, Ed Yardini, Yardini Research, Mm -hmm. one of the really smart guys on Wall Street, was telling me that he thinks that the downturn in capital spending is – is misleading because it's a lot of it has to do with the oil patch, mm-hmm. which we know mm-hmm. is weak. It's important. So if, yeah. if you take that out, things kind of look better. And 
tech, uh, healthcare, uh, are doing relatively finance better. too. Finance, yeah, yeah, which are key areas. Yeah. So, um, but that it remains to be seen. That's still an open question. Because I do feel like we we did hear some caution on earnings calls from CEOs, essentially mm-hmm. saying, you know what, I'm pulling back a little bit, or I'm not spending right. on that new factory, or mm-hmm. I'm not expanding right. maybe as aggressively right. as I could. Right. And historically, capital spending is much more volatile than consumer spending. Consumer spending is like, yeah, it tends to kind of yeah. just rise gradually. Capital spending is all over the place. So that's what you want to pay attention to. Even as though it's not as big as consumer spending, it can kind of be the thing that wags the, the tail that, that wags the dog. And I think the magazine has covered that when the longer you get into an expansion, like here we are, the longest U.S. Yeah. economic expansion on record, right. the longer that you're in it, that to keep it going, that's where capital expenditures usually typically come in towards the end and give it that last kind of oomph. And I wonder if that's the case here. Well, it is, this has been such a long cycle. It's in its 11th year now. The capital spending has had its own mini cycles yeah. within that. We've had our ups and downs. And uh, if we get another up here, it could really be good news for keeping this thing going well into its 11th, 12th year. It would be a great thing as far as uh, economic growth. That's our economics editor, Peter Coy, talking about uh, recession fears. And what's fascinating, he's absolutely right. Go back to late August, uh, just three months ago, and everybody was talking about recession. There were concerns about you know more rate increases. Where was the economy going? What's going on with the consumer? Here we are today. Everybody's not so worried, Jason. Right. It's a really interesting look into how far we've come in a very short amount of time and how much was weighing on us a few weeks ago. Are those fears completely evaporated? I guess the rest of the year will tell us. So this week in Business Week Talks, Al Kelly, he's chairman and CEO of the world's largest payments network. We're talking about Visa, 3.3 billion Visa cards in use. Full disclosure, I've got one or two. Um, more than 200 countries. Al, thank you for, for joining us. I'm delighted to be here, Carol. Thank you. I have to say, what's great about talking to someone like you that's got such a global perspective is you do have an incredible vantage point about what's going on in the world, what's going on with consumers. So tell us what you're seeing. Actually, you know, despite all of this thought that there was a recession coming. We don't see it. You know, in fact, our fourth quarter numbers, which for us were September 30 numbers, were better than the third quarter. The U.S. was up 8%. The international was up 12%, excluding China. Uh, Europe was up 13% when you exclude the U.K., which has done a little bit of self-inflicted wound to themselves. So what's wrong with everyone that we're talking so much about recession? I think it must just be the cycle. You know, it's been a long time that we've had this upswing, and I think that people just look at the history and say, it's it's got to go down at some point. But, you know, the consumer has stayed extremely strong around the world. The only place we see any weakness is in the UK. And as I said, that's kind of related to the whole Brexit situation. But other than that, the world looks pretty darn good. And so let's talk about consumers and go a level down, because you have more insights probably than almost anyone into where they're spending, how they're spending, what they're buying, what are they buying? Where, where is where's their money going? Is it experiential, like everybody keeps saying? Well, in our, in, in our world, there's a couple of things that are really dri- driving the increases in the number of transactions we're seeing. One is obviously e-commerce. You know, people are jumping on their phones and jumping on their iPads and jumping on their 
uh, computers and, and buying in big ways. We're seeing the, every month those numbers, the growth in e-com is anywhere between two and three times the growth in the face-to-face world every, every single month. Uh, we're also seeing people continuing to travel. Uh, there was a real downturn in travel back in December and January. If you remember, that's during the height of the U.S.-China trade talks. It right. was during the height of the Brexit conversations. And then we had the 45-day U.S. government shutdown. And almost immediately, consumers started to just stay at home and not travel. But we've seen that pick up, especially in the last uh, six months. And that's always a good sign that when people are willing to leave their home country and go to another country, that's a, that's a, a very, very good thing. The other thing that we're seeing is an increased amount of smaller ticket items being used uh, using digital payments. And a lot of that, I think, is driven by mass transit. We Mm -hmm. are really excited about mass transit. Just in the last uh, 90 days, we've seen open systems in Edinburgh and Sao Paulo. Uh, We started in July, I guess June here in the MTA in New York, where uh, we're only at 18 stations from Grand Central Station to Atlantic Avenue in, in Brooklyn. But by the end of October of 2020, the MTA hopes to be in all 424 subway stops. Are people using it? Absolutely. It's the whole idea of tap and go, right? Absolutely. It's tap and go. It's so convenient. It's better experience for the merchant. It's better experience for the consumer. We, we hit a million transactions in the first seven weeks. And we had no, and that's at 18 stations. Uh, it's it's truly amazing. Oh, t- absolutely continuing to grow. Tap to pay has grown hugely around the world, with the exception of the United States, interestingly enough. Well, I was going to ask you about that because we've done a lot of work Mm -hmm. in the magazine about the adoption of those sorts of systems, especially in Asia, uh, especially mobile payments, all of these things. What is it about the United States, which is usually pretty innovative in, in many ways and early adopting in terms of technologies? Why is the U.S. lagging? The U.S. is lagging because it, fir- it goes back uh, – you have to go back about six or seven years at least where the U.S. was much slower to adapt chip in the card. Right. And the, it took so long to adopt chip. At that point in time, people around the rest of the world were moving past actually just dipping the card to actually tapping. And the reality is that the, the other countries have moved hugely ahead of us. You have countries like Poland and Hungary that are over 90 percent tap to pay right. in the face-to-face world. In the U.S., we have a very interesting situation. The vast majority of the businesses are set and plumbed to be able to facilitate tap to pay. It's replacing the hundreds and hundreds of millions of cards. And the banks, rightly so, want to do it on their normal cycle. So by the end of this year, we'll have over 100 million cards in the United States that will be tap to pay uh, enabled. And by the end of next year, it'll be over 300 million. So this will take a little time. Right now, tap to pay in the United States is about 2% penetration. I think we'll get to five or six next year. And then based on our experience around the world, it will really take off. That's Al Kelly, no relation, the CEO of Visa, guy who's been around this business for quite some time. So getting his perspective on the consumer, you think about the data that they have access to the spending oh, patterns, where people are shopping, what they're buying. Pretty remarkable. Right. Their payments network is vast. So when you think about vantage points on what's going on in the global economy, what's going on with consumers, this is the guy you want to talk to. I'm on the pursuit of happiness. 
Every new watch is like a new piece of art. The Italian wines as a whole really speak to that quintessential need. It is the most powerful car made in the U.S., period. You get the beautiful interior, the iconic design. It's very chic and posh. Even if you pay for it, it's something that money can't get. So let's check out this week's Pursuits section. There's a lot of fun stuff. It all has to do with travel. The editor of Pursuits is with us, Chris Rouser. I love the opener. Let's talk about this piece. Brandon yeah. Presser, again, doing a story. He worked at LAX. How yeah. does he do this? <laughs> How does he do this? Is exactly Because last right. time we talked about him, he was working at Nobu, right? Yes. Yeah. So Brandon Presser's specialty for us is he goes behind the scenes and works undercover at all these fabulous, fancy places. So he's done it at Nobu. He was a butler at the Plaza. He was right. a ski instructor at Aspen. And every time, we're always surprised that people agree to let him do it. So LAX and like even security are like, yeah, come on in. Yes, LAX was very excited about this. They offered him access to TSA, to the private suite, the the VIP terminal. They uh, offered him access to the mail center, to food service, to the private lounges, like the business class lounges, everything. He went behind the scenes for a week and learned about how it all works. All right. So let's start with TSA. I want to (laughs) end with the luxury experience if we can. But let's start with TSA because I definitely learned some things, some slightly horrifying things about what people do. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. just some scenes in here that are hard to get out of your head. What did he learn? So... Basically, people are constantly sort of accidentally trying to bring things through uh, TSA that they don't know are contraband. So, you know, people bring a prosciutto or something or a plant is very common. But all day, every day, there's stuff that's really wild, um, including one time that one of the people that he worked with actually encountered a dead body. trying to get through security. A family, you know, a father and a family had died and they were trying to get him back to Mexico to his family for a burial. And instead of uh, shipping a coffin, which is actually expensive, they bought a one-way ticket and you cannot take a dead body well, on a plane. They, they, they basically like put him in a wheelchair, wheelchair yes. right? Full weekend at Bernie's. Yeah. <laughs> and they, you know, they got stopped at were security. Were they like, you know, dad sleeping? Like, what yes, were they thinking? That's- exactly. That's what happened. And actually, it, it's not, it's not uncommon. It happens. Wow. Yeah. Well, I was going to go to the guy who like had all the birds on him. Yes. Well, if the you read the New York birds. Post, this is really a thing, actually. There are songbird competitions uh, in, in New York, in the New York area, actually. And so people have to smuggle in songbirds. So this guy had dozens of songbirds in toilet paper rolls, little rubber bands around their beaks strapped to his body. Just flying with them. Yeah. And underneath, like, he just wore loose Underneath clothes. normal baggy like, clothes. Just going through and thinking, hey, no problem. Yep. And one time they found a cobra in a Pringles can. Yeah. Can you imagine opening up yeah. a Pringles can? That now lives at the San Diego yeah, Zoo. Yeah, now the cobra's happily. at the zoo. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Lost and Found, because I have lost things at airports uh, and found them. Uh, yes. In many cases, uh, famously left one of my jackets uh, at Heathrow, yes, and they tracked it down. Nice. But what uh, the size and scope of the yeah. LAX lost and found operation? <laughs> Holy it's smokes, massive. it's like Costco. Yeah, at any given time, they have about 6,000 laptops. And you know, if you've ever left a uh, laptop at TSA, they're actually pretty good about tracking you down and getting it back to you because yeah. it happens all the time. Um, but they have stuff where you're like, how did you even lose that? Like yeah. a surfboard or a set of bongo drums or a chainsaw, which you wouldn't have been able to get on a plane. But like, <laughs> oh, you just left your chainsaw somewhere in the airport. It is nuts. I yeah. mean, they- they talk about, they estimate that 70 people a day lose a computer. Mm-hmm. That's nuts. Yeah. Just leaving That's it like there. an Apple store in there. So one of the <laughs> things he also addresses is, and this is a very Bloomberg thing to do, essentially why things cost so much at the mm-hmm. airport. And it's because the mm-hmm. infrastructure 
is really expensive. This is an expensive proposition to run, where whether you're talking about security or retail. Pulling everything in, right? Just mm-hmm. getting everybody and everything in. Yeah, LAX, you, you might have noticed that the food is expensive at LAX. There's no McDonald's. Uh, it's all these kind of like upscale places, and it's because there's no storage really there, so they have to bring in everything every day. They can't stock. Also, staff has to be really highly paid because it takes an hour for staff to get in and out just to even get in and out of the airport. Right, right. Um, So they're paying a lot. So there's a huge premium on prices there over like what you would pay on the street. Whereas like at uh, the Portland airport, there's a 0% markup actually. But they do talk about the outposts that are there in terms of restaurants and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. They do really well. Sometimes they're the most pop, uh, most uh, profit-making enterprises that these companies have. I have to admit, I go to an airport and I do, I get kind of excited if there are good restaurants there because yeah. I know I'm going to be stuck there for a while because mm-hmm. you kind of have to get there early or there are often delays. Right, we've been in you know right. kind of. I get excited about the bad restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only time You're it's so okay happy. to eat at Chili's yeah. too. Yeah, <laughs> a Cinnabon all right. of a sudden can be dinner. All right. So speaking of paying up, of course it's LA. So of course uh, there is a premium, a super premium experience. Mm-hmm. The VIPs can sort of do it in a totally different way. Tell us about this. Yeah. So LAX has a private terminal, which is there's a forty five hundred dollar a year fee to join it, and really what you're getting there is they basically take you from your car to the plane. Uh, and so you, you miss standard security. It's just like people are breezing through. But And to be clear, this isn't to fly private. This is to fly on a commercial. Normal flight. You're right. just basically going in a different door, mm-hmm. <laughs> having a totally different experience on the way in. And as you say, avoiding all of the Sturm and Drang mm-hmm. of just and making paparazzi. your way through. LA, yeah. LAX is famous for photographers. And, right. you know, if you actually go and hang out there, you can have, with every visit, up to $2,000 in a minibar amenities for free. You can get free massages, a free hair appointment, all this stuff, and nobody does it because right. they're just going right through. They just want to get on the plane. They're not they're there for, for very access. long, ultimately, right? They talk about yeah. Meghan Markle's, right? En route to the wedding, <laughs> yes. right? She her mom, there. Yeah. She went Meghan through Markle's there. Mom, yeah, right. I mean, imagine how many people were trying to get a picture of her on that day, and she, that's just, the, this was the best way to go But through. it's not just celebrities. It's also business folks, right, mm-hmm. that are using these. Yeah, they're paying for the efficiency. Yeah, it's CEOs. It's it's business leaders. All right, talk to us, too, about the social tiers in uh, the lounges, uh, the airline lounges. I love lounges. this. Because I have to say, I've been there. Because I don't go to lounges a ton. A lot of times I'm just racing. No, yeah, seriously. Right. I'm, ra- <laughs> I'm racing. And, like, you do. You do that, like, you know, you spin around. You're like, where should I fit? Anyway, yeah. so there are. So when he worked in the lounge, he noticed uh, he was he, the people who worked there told him, you, they were like, you can always tell a first timer when they walk in. <laughs> to the lounge and they do the whole lap of the lounge to look at where to sit, where the food is, which I absolutely 100% do every time I go I've into the lounge. Yeah. yeah, and they actually they stock food differently depending on where planes uh, where flights are coming from. So, if there's flights from Asia, they actually stock it with more instant ramen. Jason Kelly's in town, it's Kobe B. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they've got, you know, they have celebrities that they're used to dealing with, of course. So, you know, one uh, Charlie's Angel star, they have to have Red Bull available for her to just grab from the bar. When I she's know there. That is. See, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so I got to ask Brandon. Um, <laughs> you know, and, the, and then so actually, one celebrity actually gives Christmas presents to all of the so staff nice. that work in the lounge, which is right. he's a hero. Really yeah. lovely. I, I, there are some good tips in here about sort of how to act like you've been there before. <laughs> I love, love, love this. Um, I want to work at. Wouldn't you like to just do that? I would. It would be such would. a blast. Hey, All right. Listen. So one of the places that I think yes. people might be going, apparently more and more, is Ghana. Accra. I, yes. Amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the 
the layout of the city and the airport is nothing I knew about before. Tell us about it. So the reason we're writing about Accra now is because uh, last year there was a renovation. There was a new terminal built there, which actually has cleaned up a lot of the, the issues that used to be a problem mm. with flying in and out of Accra. There were huge delays. You kind of had to sometimes bribe people. Um, and now that's much more efficient. And this is one of those stories where, you know, we always write about fabulous places to go, but everyone on our team was like, we really want to go here. This sounds so fun. Uh, it's, you know, they say it's the most friendly city in Africa. The people are super welcoming. Um, it's the capital of Ghana. Right. And, you know, the area around the airport is actually the most fabulous place to live because so the bad. traffic is so bad when you're there. So people love to be where you can get in and out. And that's kind of the cool scene. So um, unusual, right? Because anywhere else, like in right. our country, you don't want to be living near the airport. So it's mm-hmm. interesting that it is, that it makes sense there. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's a big artistic cultural mm. culture there. So, uh, you know, our writer went and she visited all these different artists. She went, she visited this guy who makes these fantastic coffins yeah. uh, because funerals are big parties in Accra. And they, you know, you can make a coffin that's a giant Nike sneaker, one that's a tree. Um, and she actually got caught up in a, in a funeral party. And she said, literally everything in Accra is a party. Hey, listen, also this week, um, Pursuits hosted the Year Ahead in Luxury. Yes. And thank you for your help with that, Carol. You're very welcome. Um, you know, we started doing the Year Ahead in Luxury last year, which is a spinoff of our Year Ahead franchise. Um, and it's a half a day conference and we just get leaders from all different aspects of stuff we cover. So from food and wine to travel, to fashion, to cars. So we had Alessandro Boliolo, the CEO of Tiffany come in. We had Brunello Cuccinelli, the designer come in and talk about this community that he's built around, uh, the village where they make all the clothes. Mm -hmm. Um, we had Klaus Elmer from Porsche come and talk about, uh, electrification. Um, and then Steven Starr, the restaurateur came, which is very cool talking about, you know, what we can expect in food next year. So it was really fun day um, and we're very psyched to be able to do this every year. That's the editor of Pursuits, Chris Rouser, and I love talking with Chris about the section this week because it was all about flying uh, some of the highlights and in particular I love getting the details from Chris on Brandon Presser's story. Brandon goes undercover, not really undercover, I mean we all know the companies that he goes to knows he's doing it, he does it at restaurants, but he did it at LAX, he worked there, and so he really got the inside perspective of what goes on at one of the world's busiest airports. Well from what you might find in the security line to what your bottle of water costs and why. Yeah. Uh, some really, really great stuff. It's a fantastic issue of the magazine, a double issue, as you said, at the top of the show. We're going to have more coming up next week. We're going to talk about Warby Parker. We're going to talk a little bit about Amtrak as well. And Google Generals. Google getting together with uh, really the U.S. Defense Department because they want some of those contracts. And that wraps up this week's edition of the Bloomberg Business Week Weekend Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio, live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get us via podcast. Download that at Bloomberg.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can get this week's edition of the magazine. It's a double issue and it's on newsstands now. We'll be right back here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.